HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. This is a story of bravery and of purpose, born out of unthinkable tragedy. If food safety seems like an abstract policy concept to you, you must listen to Darren Detweiler's story. When Darren's 16-month-old son contracted E. coli at daycare, Darren's world turned upside down. And in the decades since, Darren, a former U.S. Navy nuclear engineer, has dedicated himself to making sure that we all understand the true human cost of unsafe food practices. Listen and weep. So, Darren, let's start at the beginning. Great. Tell me how you, some tender age, you found yourself entering into the world of nuclear engineering, nuclear subs, and the Navy. How did you get from there to food safety? Well, you know, I was uh, very active in high school and different things from journalism to student government to band. And and uh, one of those moments where there's a career fair and the Navy recruiter goes, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be challenged. I want to see what am I made of kind of a thing. And he goes, well, there's two programs. You could either be a, a Navy SEAL. I'm like, no. Uh, or you can operate a nuclear reactor on a submarine. I said, well, I don't know anything about that. That sounds difficult to sign me up. Uh, I really did not know what I was getting myself <laughs> into. Uh, but it was the most demanding set of schools, the most demanding work place. You know, you're on a submarine. This is the Cold War. I was late teens, early 20s, and I'm operating a propulsion plant and all these different seawater and air and nuclear and, and freshwater and steam systems. It's like living inside a huge engineering plant, right? 24-7. <laughs> As things go, eventually, you either re-enlist or you don't. I decided to get out. And at 24 years of age, I was recently married. 
married, I had a stepson, and I had a, a brand new son, left the Navy, moved back to Washington State from Hawaii, and started afresh. And as such, my um, my then wife went to work, I went to work, my uh, then nine-year-old son went to school, and my 16-month-old son was in daycare. You know, this was 1993, this is what people did. And one day, you start hearing news about this this problem with, with some foodborne pathogen. And more news comes out, and you hear that it's tied to hamburgers being sold in Seattle, which is about an hour and a half south of where we lived at the time. And so you go, okay, well, hey, look, I'm worried about my nine-year-old, of all things, because my 16-month-old's not eating a hamburger at a restaurant. And let's not eat hamburgers. Let's not eat at that restaurant. Let's not go down to Seattle, and we'll be safe. I go to pick up my 16-month-old son, Riley, at daycare one day, and there's a flyer taped to the door from the county health department saying that another child had tested positive for E. coli and to watch out for these symptoms in your child. And literally that night, we saw symptoms. You see a notice like that, and you still think this is over there, you know, that this doesn't happen to you. He didn't eat a hamburger, so how could he get sick? And then that night, we saw some of the symptoms they said to look for. We took him to the local clinic. He was tested, and it took 48 hours for a test result to come back. But they were still monitoring him, and he had E. coli. And Was he in the hospital this was, at this point? So he was in the hospital at this point. There were concerns over watching his uh, renal function and your level of alert when you're 16 month old, any age, right? Child is in the hospital and he's connected to IVs and different tubes and wires monitoring him. You can't explain to a 16 month old what's going on, but your 16 month old is definitely scared and hurting, wants to be held. At this point, he couldn't have a bottle, like a baby bottle. One of my memories of that period includes sitting there on a hospital bed, holding him on my lap, being careful of not pulling something out of his arm. And he's looking at an IV bag on a hanger and he's pointing to it saying, Baba, Baba, because there's a container full of liquid. It looks like a bottle to some extent. And, you know, realize that, you know, in his 16 month old words, He's asking for comfort. He's asking for support. He's asking for normalcy in that situation. And mm. you're sitting there thinking, oh, he's going to get better. Uh, they're going to give him something. They're going to give him some drug or something like that, or it's just going to go away, magically go away. But it literally every single day starts advancing. The next day, they don't like the numbers. The next day, they decide he needs to go and be airlifted to Seattle Children's Hospital. The next day, he goes in from pediatric ward to pediatric intensive care ward. The next day, he goes in for exploratory surgery. And we had no idea what to expect. They brought him out, and he was lying there. And we were told by the doctors that they needed to put him in a medically induced coma, that he had Vaseline in his eyes, his eyes were taped closed. 
and that the surgery revealed far more damage than they had anticipated, that they removed a vast majority of his lower intestines and he needed to be put on dialysis. And at the time, there were so many more growing numbers of young patients here in Seattle that they literally had to scramble to get dialysis machines that were capable of of working with such young patients. And he had never eaten the hamburger. He had never eaten a hamburger in his life. It's not even like he never ate a hamburger during the outbreak. He never ate a hamburger, period. So we're finding out a few things at this point. One, not only are they saying, okay, well, this was from Jack in the Box. There's more cases in this outbreak. There's growing numbers. We're seeing these patients in the Tillers Hospital there in Seattle. The executives from the food company are saying that the outbreak is ending, but the doctors are saying they're expecting a, a new second wave of patients. And you come to find out a few things. One is that it's not just from eating the hamburgers. It's also from person-to-person contact with those who had eaten the hamburgers and became sick. And no one had really been talking about this idea of a secondary exposure, this person-to-person type transmission of the pathogen. And no one had been talking about the fact that the most vulnerable populations were these young children. And if you look at the numbers, not only from that outbreak, but from outbreaks of any nature since then, you typically are looking at the large number of people who get sick but don't report it. Of those who have reported it, you have these numbers. But then when you look at the people who are sick and they're hospitalized, they have to have dialysis, they end up dying from this. You typically find the most vulnerable populations, either the very young or the very old. You'll also get in there perhaps someone who's pregnant or has a compromised immune system. But for the most part, you're talking about children who are under four or five years of age because of the nature of their immune system. So there was this conflict between what the company was saying, what the media was reporting, what the doctors were saying, as we're expecting more and more of these patients coming in from this outbreak. At the same time that you're witnessing this, you're you're witnessing this kind of live Venn diagram of different perspectives of what's going on. You're still anchored to the fact that your child is in this hospital room and in this bed. You're kind of struggling between, I want to be there at all times, But A, the doctors and the nurses have to do their work. B, you just cannot be there 24-7 in a situation like this. What ultimately is occurring here is that his stats, to put this into perspective, he went from being a young 16-month-old boy who's learning to talk, he's learning to walk, he's the center of your, your family's activity, to holding him on your lap on a hospital bed when he's crying for a bottle that you can't give to him and you're you can't communicate to him why he's there what he needs to do what's going on mm-hmm. to seeing your child being put onto a helicopter to be airlifted to now being in pediatric intensive care unit at children's hospital and his little blonde hair boy body is just completely dwarfed. There are wires and tubes and monitors and beeps and lights and devices and things you can't even name, or even if you understand what the number was telling you, you still don't know enough about it. And just somewhere in there is a body. 
and you can't pick them up. You can't do the things as a parent that you want to do. And here within 30 days, his numbers just start decreasing and decreasing and decreasing to the point where the doctors and nurses says, there's nothing left that we can do. There's, there's, there's absolutely nothing we can do. There's not enough oxygen getting to his brain. He is essentially brain dead. We get second opinions, we get third opinions. And ultimately they're telling you that at this point, it's just essentially a form of torture to keep him on life support because there's absolutely nothing that can be done at this point. And the nurses disconnect everything and wrap them up in a blanket and put them in your arms and you're holding him this, this wrong victory. You're finally able to hold your child again, but your mind is saying, open your eyes. Your mind is saying, I feel his heartbeat. Your mind is saying that I see his chest rise and fall. You're looking for all these symptoms, all these, these indicators, all these, these signs that some miracle is happening. He's come back to life and that doesn't happen. And the last time you end up seeing your son is when he's carried in the world's smallest white coffin at a funeral. I served in the military so that my children wouldn't have to do this. So it'd be a safer world, a, a better world for them. I thought that being a nuclear engineer on a submarine in the Navy was going to be the most challenging thing I would ever do in my life. And it is a major eye-opener when you realize that that did nothing to prepare you for this moment in your life. When you have to pick up the phone and call your house and talk to your in-laws to tell your stepson that his brother died, when you hear in your parents' and, and in-laws' voices what you ultimately interpret as they're used to seeing older friends and family die, not dealing with the death of someone that young. And when you are trying to figure out your next steps and then you get a phone call from Air Force One and President Bill Clinton calls and talks to you father to father. This major outbreak was taking place during uh, a major storm that happened in Seattle uh, that took out power. And that storm happened to take place about the time when President Bill Clinton was being inaugurated, his, his first uh, inauguration. And right after that, he had his first, quote unquote, televised live town meeting. And one of the studios was literally down the street from Children's Hospital. If you were to look at C-SPAN, um, you can find this video of where we were talking with President Clinton about the outbreak, and he was asking questions about it. And it turns out that he was flying an Air Force One to Seattle, and he was going to visit us at Children's Hospital. But just as he was about to land, was informed that our son had died. And so he paid a call, and I'm talking with him on the phone, and he asks, what can we do? What can, what can we do about this? What, and, and what do you do going forward? Which is a very strange question for the president of the United States to ask. Maybe not. I mean, I think that at the time he was asking as a father, not as a elected president. And I didn't necessarily know, but I knew that there had to be something done. 
technically I was actually still in uniform. I wasn't serving in active duty. I was in the reserves at that time. And I realized that service to others, service to a nation does not necessarily mean you have to be in a uniform. And ultimately there were three things that have driven me and my work for three decades now. One is that while I lost my son, I couldn't imagine a world where my son in some afterlife kind of a thing would, would ever think or say that he lost his father. Two, you know, to look at this little dash between 1991 when he was born and 1993 when he died on a, a gravestone and realize that he didn't have an opportunity for self-actualization and for what his life, what his legacy would mean. What could I do to help kind of, if not bring purpose, at least bring some kind of a legacy to, to that. And then finally, as a father, you start to think in terms of, I can't go to sleep at night knowing what I know and experiencing what I've experienced and not doing anything and allowing another parent to, to live with a chair forever empty at the family table. And I think ultimately that's what has driven my learning and my work and, and what will continue to drive my work for, for many years, hopefully to come. When we come back, we hear how Darren turned his grief into a lifelong dedication to improving food safety and food handling practices for all of us. It's an inspirational story that you won't want to miss. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. And we are back with Darren Detweiler. So let's talk about that work. It's a hard story to listen to. It's a hard story to tell. It's a hard story to imagine that anybody gets over. You don't get over it, but you galvanized you into a, a whole different career change. So talk about that. Talk about what you decided to do. Initially, I started doing some work speaking and I met with the Secretary of Agriculture, went to D.C. I started working with the USDA. We were able to get some significant development in the USDA's pathogen reduction program that included not only consumer education, but also mandatory labeling, uh, the safe food handling labels, clean, cook thoroughly, refrigerate leftovers, some statements that you now see still all these years later packages of raw meat and poultry sold at your stores. 
this was controversial at the time. There's a lot of backlash. It's how can we say that there's a problem with our food? Well, there's a problem. You go to the hardware store and buy a hammer, you get a page and a half of warnings, wear protective eyewear, adult supervision, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you buy meat and there's no indication that you need to take some precautions. The average consumer was not aware of this. And so it was a significant victory back then to get it mandated that uh, here are some safe handling instructions. But the why behind that was kind of eliminated. It just says you need to do this. It doesn't tell you why, right? Um, I went back to university and knowing how to operate a nuclear reactor was not going to help me anymore in this case. I got a degree in history and civics. I got a degree in education and became a, a public school teacher while I was working as a public school teacher in the Seattle area for 16 years, by the way. I was flying back and forth to Washington, D.C. I served as a national policy advisor for the Secretary of Agriculture. I worked with the National Science Teacher Association and the FDA and the USDA on um, curriculum and public instruction and things of this nature. And most of the people I worked with had no idea what I was doing or, or why. It was very strange that I was leaving all the time and the school district was supporting me going back and forth and doing this work. But on the 20th anniversary of 1993's Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak, I had a classroom full of seventh and eighth graders. We had been doing this unit on reform in America, looking at Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, and looking at the state of food safety at the time. And we're really kind of focusing on this line in, in 1906, the literary review of the jungle in the London Daily Times. Mm -hmm. The reviewer stated that the things described by Mr. Sinclair happened yesterday or happening today and tomorrow and will continue to happen until some Hercules comes to cleanse the filthy stable. Which we're reading this, you know, in 2013 was pretty powerful thinking that this was written in 1906. Um, my students were asking questions about this. They had no idea what my connection was to food safety at this point. But I had some doctors and some lawyers and some epidemiologists and some journalists in my classroom who I invited. This was like the 20th anniversary, and this was a good newsworthy kind of coverage. What is this uh, guy who lost his kid 20 years ago doing today? And let's talk about this. And one of the reporters kind of revealed to the students that I had lost a kid in 1993. And my students at the time, they all had laptops. This was one of those classrooms where everyone had a laptop. In five seconds, they all knew my entire backstory. And while they're filming, a student goes, Mr. D, if you were doing all this work then, and you're still kind of doing this work now, why are you a history teacher? And you know, how do you react to that? So I literally, I quit. Um, I finished off the end of my contract and um, I was a, a single person at this time and I ended up relocating to the East Coast and someone very important in my life was asking me a question. What do I want to do? Do I want to be a food policy person or do I want to be an educator? And I said, maybe I need to focus on food policy. So I started working in that direction and I started writing for magazines. I started speaking again. I started consulting and then the opportunity to become an adjunct instructor at Northeastern came up. It was a good fit teaching courses about food safety, regulatory affairs of food, that kind of a thing. I ended up 
earning my doctorate in law and policy with a focus on states' abilities to implement federal food policies. During my doctoral program, I was traveling around the country with the FDA as they were working on the Food Safety Modernization Act, uh, developing these rules and meeting with farmers and constituents around the country. And then after I earned my doctorate, I was hired full-time. I started teaching full-time in these courses, but I started branching out to teach courses like Global Economics of Food and Agriculture, Corporate Social Responsibility, uh, Social Impact, things of that nature, where it really, really kind of started to, to, to branch out in some different directions, still being able to focus on some of the very core elements of priority and, and my mission, opportunities started to come along. I speak about 40, 50 times a year, even during the pandemic, without going anywhere. I think I actually speak more during the pandemic, mm -hmm. virtual conferences, virtual events with companies. Uh, in 2020, I had two books published by Elsevier Academic Publishing, including uh, Food Safety Past, Present Predictions, as well as Building the Future of Food Safety Technology. In 2020, I did a TED Talk, and that TED Talk was different for me. Most of my presentations before large audiences are about the why behind food safety, about the understanding of the, the changes in the court cases and the, the nature of the outbreaks and technology and media and even social media and so many different factors. Whereas this TED Talk in Boston in, in 2020, I focused on myself, this idea of how I advised people in 1993 and how I advise people today and about how if I were to be one of those people that all I did was focus on the past and blame people and point fingers and relive that moment and that's all I did that's not healthy and it's not sustainable Whereas my shift in my career over the years has been not that I don't talk about my son's history or, or about my past, but my goal has been to inspire and to support and to, to challenge those who have the ability to make decisions and play a role in food safety um, to think about not only the legal and the economic aspects of it, but also the, the more ethical and, and even philanthropic elements of food safety to help tell stories that are meant to better underscore why we do the things we need to do. It's not something we do only when there's an inspection. It's not something we do once a year. It's something that there has to be this living, breathing culture, this idea that every moment of, of every day, of every shift, of every product line, of, of everything you're doing has to be considered to have certain risks. And, you know, as a parent, there are certain things we know. We don't put on a seatbelt only when we're about to hit a car. We don't tell our kids to look both ways only every once in a while when they're going to cross the street. We don't think about things in terms of food safety the same way we think about other things. Whether we're talking about look both ways before you cross the street because there always can be a car coming. Always wear your seatbelt because there always can be danger. Stranger danger on the internet. There's certain things we talk about in terms of there's always some form of risk out there. But we don't talk about food that way. There's, there's a fine line between scaring people out of eating food and this idea of 
but but there comes certain responsibilities right if you're making food for yourself that's one thing perhaps but if you're making food for a lot of people or if you're inviting people over to your house and there are people who are very young or they're very they're elderly they have compromised immune system maybe your sister's over and she's pregnant you can't go serving risky foods or taking risks so that macaroni and cheese i left it out overnight on the counter uh it's still fine or that chicken i like it when it's kind of raw and pink there are consequences for these decisions and we need to understand these consequences but also the fact that when you look at the most vulnerable populations especially the very young they don't have a voice there's no like sense of democracy they're not going to be voters they're not going to be customers they're not making shopping decisions there's a current outbreak right now with with powdered infant formula made in the United States, major brand infant formula, that there are two pathogens that are found in it. And parents are being urged, if you use powdered formula, look at this, look for this brand, look for this lot number, look for this date kind of a thing, because there are people who are suffering. Here's the symptoms, that kind of stuff. You look at that and you realize that the infants don't have a voice in that. They don't have you know, the ability to go, oh, I'm going to avoid that. Um, but you also look at those parents who may be very young or, or you don't know what's going on. There's this disconnect with information. So at the same time, how many people think of powdered infant formula as being something where there's some form of salmonella in it? There's a lot of foods over the last three decades. You know, it's not just hamburgers. It's not just meat and poultry like it used to be in 1993. In fact, there are more outbreaks and recalls tied to food that's regulated by the FDA than by the USDA these days. There was a shift in about 2015 where you could literally see the the curve go towards um, more produce, commercially packaged goods, ready-to-eat foods, more foods regulated by the FDA that are involved in recalls and outbreaks than food regulated by the USDA. And I remember being at these stakeholder meetings with the FDA, the USDA, and CDC where you know, we're looking at, you know, caramel apples or uh, bottled water, uh, ice cream, peanuts, cantaloupe. You look at some of these major landmark outbreaks um, over the last three decades. What started off as a focus on meat now has become a focus on eggs, cantaloupe, romaine lettuce, leafy greens, ice cream, things of these nature. Some of these m- biggest outbreaks are far from this cookie cutter of what people thought of in terms of food safety. And so it just goes to that level of complexity and this nature of food safety and and what we do and don't know. What percentage of those outbreaks do you believe at this point could have, could have been prevented? Of long assumed it's the vast majority of outbreaks could have been prevented. There's this conception when you go back to 1993, well, if it's USDA inspected, then how can it be contaminated? Well, it, it, USDA inspected means that a sample was taken and that testing will take place and results will come back. But our system is set up such that by the time that testing takes place and the results come back, it's already been entered into commerce. It's gone. It's gone out the door. We saw with romaine lettuce the idea that um, the uh, FDA couldn't trace back where it came from. It had a hard time finding, uh, you know, where did it come from? Where did it go? There was no real tracking of it, the distribution. When you look at whether it's foodborne allergens or physical contaminants like 
metal, glass, rocks, outbreaks, uh, mislabelings in terms of those things. These are all usually due to human error. So I'm sure there's some things that are completely, you really boil it down and it was a complete accident. But if you have a company that is not testing, if you have a company that's not um, looking for these things or they're not processing the, these things fast enough, this is how these things happen. And you look at a couple cases for instance, 2008, 2009, there was an outbreak of salmonella tied to peanuts. And essentially, it was from this company that would take peanuts and they would turn it into this peanut powder or dust that would be used in cake mixes and, and candies and cereals and things like that. And A, here's this outbreak. Over 3,900 different types of food were recalled. And the federal government couldn't find where the source was. Ultimately, the source was found. And here is this company that knowingly had holes in the roof, rainwater, contaminated, rat poop. They were testing it and they were either falsifying the documents or they would cherry pick which test results they wanted to communicate back. And the QA manager literally would liquid paper over the dates if needed to, to satisfy the people that were buying this. The CEO told people to go over there with brooms, sweep off the poop off the top and, and just ship it. We don't care. Just ship it. Just ship it. That company ultimately was found to be where the problem was. It was stopped. The CEO and, and his brother and the QA manager and two other people ultimately faced about nearly 100 federal criminal charges and were found guilty of almost all of them. And I'm talking with the CEO on the phone in that period of time between when convictions came down and when the sentencing was going to take place. And I said, I lost a son in 1993 with Jack in the Box. And Jack in the Box did not face any state or federal charges. There were no charges filed huh. against Jack in the Box at the time. Even though, A... They admitted that they broke state law in cooking the hamburgers at too low of a temperature. And we know that if you break a law and results in someone's death, you should be found uh, to be responsible for that. And in 1975, we have this Supreme Court decision in U.S. v. Park, or Park v. U.S., depending on if you look at the appeal, uh, which from that comes the responsible corporate officer doctrine, this idea that, especially in the food industry, a corporate executive, a responsible corporate officer, can and shall be held personally and strictly liable for failure to take action. And that was not applied then. And here I am talking with Stuart Parnell from Peanut Corporation America, and he goes, oh, yeah, those jack-in-the-box people, they should have gone to jail for a long time, but not me, not me. And at this point in 2015, the only examples of people going to prison because of food was this father and son owner of a company called Tecosters, uh, or, or Quality Eggs. They had a long series of failures, and there was this massive outbreak of half a billion eggs being recalled. They were sentenced to significant fines, corporate and personal, as well as three months prison each. And so here, the CEO of Peanut Corporation of America, responsible for nine deaths, and what the CDC estimated as 22,000 illnesses, he assumed that he was going to go to jail for three months as well. I was in the courtroom during the sentencing and the shock when it came down that he was sentenced to 28 years in federal prison and that his brother received 20 year sentence and the QA manager received a five year sentence when the only kind of precedent had been three months. 
There were people who said, that's too much. There were people who said, that's not enough. This man literally was responsible for more deaths than Charles Manson. Since then, we've seen Chipotle uh, with their massive outbreaks, six different outbreaks, multi-state and single state, 2015 to 2018. The Department of Justice not only fined them the largest fine in U.S. history related to food safety incident, and within a few weeks, Bluebell Creameries with their Listeria outbreak was uh, $17 million approximately, the second largest fine. And the DOG is still dealing with uh, the former president of Bluebell Creamery in terms of some of the results in that outbreak. But the reality is, while we can focus on those biggest failures, those biggest fines, those biggest jail sentences, uh, those largest number of illnesses and deaths, it's easy for us to focus on the negatives. One of the things I've tried to do over the last three decades is focus on the idea that there are so many other companies that go above and beyond and raise the bar for prioritization and investment and training and advancement of this idea of food safety. It's important to understand what can happen to a person. It angers me when I read some things that, oh, and some people can get sick. Yeah, and some people can die. Don't go making it sound like some people are inconvenienced and that's the worst that can happen, right? You need to understand the true range of likelihood and severity. But that has to come with this idea, this, this awareness of the fact that there are so many companies that go above and beyond every single day. You don't pay attention to when it's done right. You, you tend to focus on when it goes wrong. And if that was all I did, that also would not be healthy or sustainable for me to do. I have to look to the food industry for inspiration and validation of what I do, just as much as I try to provide inspiration and validation to people and what, what they do in this arena. Darren, it's incredible. Just incredible. And if there were a takeaway that somebody listening to this podcast, your call to action, what would it be? Many years ago, I read this idea that a man is not measured by what happens to him, but by what he does with that experience. And I think about that often. I don't want to be known as the person who lost a kid. I don't want to be known of as a victim. I don't want my son's legacy to be that he was a casualty in all this case. I would rather, when people see my son's photo, when they read my son's name, when they see what I'm doing, they see here is someone who went through this experience and has decided that this is the focus of his life. And I've had a lot of different job hats since then over three decades, but I've had one clear mission, which is I don't want to go and stand idly by and allow food safety not to become a priority, not to improve and to watch other families suffer the same experience that I did. I can't go and invent a cure. And if I did, I would need to have invented a time machine to completely solve this issue for me personally. But if what I write, if what I teach helps bring this idea of the true burden of disease, 
what is behind the statistics? What's behind these numbers? What's behind these averages or estimates? There's real names. There's real faces. There's real stories. There's real struggle and pain and loss. And whereas we can talk about some major companies, you'll see in the media, oh, this company rebounds economically after this recall kind of stuff. Where's the coverage in terms of the families that recover, the families that rebound? And it's not like binary. You either die or you live. What about the people who they are no longer in the hospital, but they will live with lifelong medical complications? I've talked with families. I've talked with mothers who are worried about their children going through puberty or, or you know, will she ever be able to live a normal life or will he ever be able to um, – there's a difference between surviving and, and living our normal life. We don't have to talk about those survivors or those families and the guilt of so many parents who will never know what actually caused their child's illness. Some 80% of people will never know what was the actual cause of their illness. It's far beyond the illness and outbreak. It is this idea of how do you put your life together as a parent after something like this? We don't, we don't talk about the real impact on, on the human nature of a family, of a parent, of, of a survivor who's living with these lifelong medical impact. fears and concerns and realities. I have to tell you, I thank you so much for sharing this with us, but I'm very grateful for this story. And just as a coda to this, are you optimistic? Uh that's a long pause. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Optimistic is an interesting word. I feel appreciated and validated, and I feel very useful. I feel very much as if I am living uh, a promise to my son and that for my other family members, I'm doing something that they would be proud of. I am aware that there are people who their careers – have been intertwined with mine and that they've taken inspiration from what I do. And that is a very powerful eye opener in terms of uh, an influence I could have made to the very people who need to hear, they need to be impacted by this in order to continue with the momentum and the work they're doing in terms of food safety. Now there'll never be an end to foodborne pathogens. There will never be an end to this. What I'm optimistic about is the idea of the culture changing, the, the change in culture we've had, the awareness, even the pandemic. I think that the pandemic has perhaps expedited this nature, not of food safety, but of a, a culture around food safety. And that does leave me optimistic in terms of these signs that people do care about these things. People can learn about these things. And people, consumers, customers, the, the average constituent, knows that they can play a role in this overall culture. Thank you for this. I knew it would be really quite a remarkable conversation. I hope that achieved what you wanted to achieve there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Quite a Great. story. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yes. Thank you, Darren. And listeners, if you want to know more, you might want to download Darren's TED Talk, Inspiring Change, Harnessing the Inner Hercules. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss, 
podcast, Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 